What's going on, everyone? It's Wednesday, April 27th, and you're listening to The Hustle Daily Show. I'm Zachary Crockett, and I'm here with Rob Litterst. What's going on, Zach? And Mark Dent, who's getting married this weekend. Crazy, but it happened in about four days. <laughs> yeah. All right, so Twitter's board just approved Elon Musk's $44 billion offer to take the company private. If you need a primer on everything that led up to that, Rob and Jacob did a great breakdown in yesterday's podcast episode. But today, we are going to focus on some of the big societal, technological, and political implications of this purchase. Uh, we're going to focus on three things, and we'll tell you what those are in a second. But first, let's take a look at some other news around the web. Authentic Brands Group, that's the parent company of Forever 21, they are suing Bolt, the one-click payment startup. The company claims that Bolt did not deliver on its technology promises, resulting in $150 million in lost sales. And interesting thing of note here is that ABG is one of Bolt's largest customers. So pro tip for anyone listening, it's not a good idea to piss off your largest customer. Kevin Hart's media company Heartbeat raised $100 million from the private equity firm Arby Partners, valuing the company at $650 million. This move follows similar celebrity raises. Reese Witherspoon partnered with a private equity firm back in 2016 to launch Hello Sunshine. And Will and Jada Smith have their own media company, Westbrook. But compared to Kevin Hart, you might say Smith's valuation is a bit of a slap in the face. Back in February, Chipotle announced a 10% price hike on its menu items. Well, it seems to have helped them. Their Q1 earnings just came out, and they beat Wall Street estimates with a hair over $2 billion in revenue. People have sacrificed a lot of things these past few years, but clearly burrito bowls is not one of them. All right, let's get into it. So we're going to touch on three things today. One, the increasing media influence of billionaires. Two, how to solve some of these algorithmic issues on Twitter's platform, and three, how Twitter plays into the larger free speech debate. All right, Mark, let's start off with your main takeaway here. Elon Musk is obviously a very wealthy individual. In fact, the most wealthy individual in the world. What stood out to you here in particular about the role that his wealth might play into this acquisition? Yeah, when Musk first started talking about buying Twitter and then when it was finalized yesterday, it really kind of brought into focus for me how a handful of billionaires essentially own the internet, like at least the biggest parts of the internet, the different things that we're most likely to use in a given day. Like I, I think of it myself as like a work from home person, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners are. I spend a lot of my day, well, well maybe not because I'm not like a shopaholic for this first one, <laughs> but at least when I am shopping, I'm oftentimes looking on Amazon. Mm -hmm. When I want to read national news, I'm either going to the Washington Post or the New York Times. I do spend a lot of time on Twitter because I'm a journalist and therefore I'm addicted to it. Facebook and Instagram are still where I connect with people. And just think about who owns those companies now. Obviously, Bezos and Amazon, Bezos and the Washington Post, Zuckerberg and Facebook and Instagram, and now Elon Musk and Twitter. And, and mm -hmm. those people are all obviously very rich and very influential. They're very public billionaires. 
I think there's somewhat of a difference between like, say, a Zuckerberg and Elon Musk in, in their ownership of Facebook and of Twitter now, because obviously Elon Musk just swooped in and bought it for billions of dollars, whereas Zuckerberg made it. But that said, Zuckerberg has incredibly tight control over Facebook, particularly for given that it's a public company. And Elon Musk has admitted as much literally this month when he said that Facebook, or rather Meta, is set up, quote, so that Mark Zuckerberg the 14th will be in charge. Yeah. So it's very tight control by these very few billionaires. Yeah. And obviously, you know, societal control by billionaires is nothing new, but there are kind of probably a few market differences in this new iteration of that. Yeah. Like Vanderbilt and Rockefeller, like in the Gilded Age, they owned railroads and oil and things like that, which certainly were a big part of our lives. But this sort of control is is a little bit different. I think of it as when you want to go buy something, you're engaging with Jeff Bezos's company. When you want to read something, Jeff Bezos's company, when you want to like share about it, Zuckerberg's company or Elon Musk's company now. And it's like these sort of companies that they hold are like right at our fingertips Mm -hmm. and we in some ways cannot avoid them. And whereas, yes, that was true, certainly in like the late 19th century and early 20th century with some of the monopolies of that era, we could still go to like a grocery store or to like a clothing store and parts of our lives that are necessary and fun Mm -hmm. that aren't just like your average business kind of your life. And now those aspects of our life are controlled by these few people. Yeah, I think we should also say that obviously many small newspapers across the country are also owned by hedge funds and a lot of mainstream media companies are owned by people who are very wealthy as well. But this does kind of raise a tangential question, which is, you know, if Elon Musk has control over a massive communications platform like Twitter, or if Jeff Bezos has control over the Washington Post, these are men who have individual stakes and independent interests in their own companies. So maybe a fear is that those biases will leak into those outlets. And I think that's like exactly what people have been sort of expressing fear about with Elon Musk. There's been a lot of reaction. And, you know, we're having this podcast about reactions to something that we don't know what's going to happen yet either. Right. right. So, you know, we're we're certainly part of that. But just knowing that a, a person who is already this divisive and powerful is now in charge of a tool that is divisive and powerful, I think is going to make people have thoughts. So Rob, turning to you, uh, another part of this is obviously not just the societal stuff that's happening up front, but the technological changes that are going to happen on the back end. And probably the biggest piece of this equation is that Musk has said that he wants to make some changes to Twitter's algorithm, right? Yeah, exactly. So One of the things that Musk mentioned in his offer for Twitter was that it has extraordinary potential that he would like to unleash, but nobody really knows exactly what he meant by that. He says he's going to unleash it, which I think a lot of people assume means that he's going to make some changes to the product. And Zach, you mentioned the idea of opening up the algorithm. Musk tweeted in March that he's worried about the de facto bias in the Twitter Mm -hmm. algorithm having a major effect on public discourse, which I think is a valid concern, right? We don't really know what goes into Twitter's algorithm. We don't Mm -hmm. really understand what is throwing what goes into our feed in front Mm -hmm. of our face. And so I think the argument for opening up the algorithm is to give people a little bit more control about what they're seeing, which could be pretty interesting. Sure. I'm not entirely sure how that would look. I think there have been some kind of tech elite and tech writers who have pontificated about what an open algorithm would actually look like. But there are a few other ideas and kind of thoughts that Musk has 
around changing the product. One thing Jacob and I touched on it very quickly yesterday, but getting rid of bots and authenticating all real human beings. Mm -hmm. Zach, you mentioned this in our Slack, but getting rid of bots isn't exactly easy. And I I think Musk said he's going to try to get rid of bots or die trying, which (laughs) he might actually do the latter because it seems (laughs) like on the internet, it's pretty impossible to get rid of bots. Instagram has them, Facebook has them, everybody has them, and it's pretty difficult to get rid of them. Sure. The biggest change that we might see, I think, could be to Twitter's business model. And it's no secret that Twitter has been a struggling business ever since it went public. I think the stat is they've had 33 earnings calls since their IPO, and in only 14 of them have they posted a profit. So there are a lot of reasons, I think, for that. Like when you think about the big advertising businesses, like Google is the front page of the internet. So they capture everybody's intent and they can tell you exactly like what product you're looking for. You think about Facebook where they know absolutely everything about you. So they can target you with the most specific products for you possible. Not WhatsApp yet. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Maybe that'll come at some point. But Twitter, it's like people are Ben Thompson from Stratechery talks about it. So when you're on Instagram, you're kind of leaning back and you're relaxed and you're in a mood where you might actually be interested in clicking on an ad, right? But when you're on Twitter, you might be leaning forward in your seat. You're a lot more interested in what you're reading. And Ben Thompson Mm -hmm. called it, you're ready to mainline information. Like you're not really in a mood where you're relaxed and having leisure time, Mm. which really kind of changes your openness probably to receive ads and and has a big impact on whether or not Twitter could actually be a viable advertising business. Just by nature of the way that things are consumed on the platform. Exactly. And I mean, from anecdotal experience, like I don't think I've ever clicked on a Twitter ad. And I use Twitter. I'm just like you, Mark, like I'm on Twitter all the time and it's completely compulsive at this point, completely addicted to it. It's terrible, but I never click on the ads. It's just all about the information in my feed. The ads just stand out and look silly. Exactly. And it's like you see the same one every single day. Like they do. There's a stretch where I swear to God, I saw the exact same ad for this company, Main Street, <laughs> every day for like two months. It's like, this guy must be just spending his entire raise. I got like some MIT wine club thing for like literally years. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was like MIT graduates start wine club. They like hyper targeted <laughs> their audience to people named Mark Dent. <laughs> so Thompson has a proposal for Twitter to change its business model. And people think that Musk could go in this direction. Like one of the biggest arguments I think for taking Twitter private is to transform the business model when they're public wouldn't really be feasible because it would just be completely scrapping their revenue plans and the shareholders would freak out, the board would freak out, everybody would freak out. So they've been super cautious about this sort of stuff forever. But with Musk taking them private, he has a little bit more freedom and flexibility to kind of do what he wants to do. And so Thompson's proposal is this. He thinks that Twitter should basically make its core service its own company. So think of Twitter just kind of without ads, the feed, the social graph, everything that goes into that. And he thinks that Twitter should open it up to third parties and essentially let other companies build services on top of the core Twitter service, which by the way, is what they did in the beginning. And Jack Dorsey has said the worst mistake they ever made is getting rid of the open API that Twitter Mm. had. Like you guys probably remember some of the apps that were built around it, like Tweety, I think TwitPick was one of them. With this model, Thompson says these third parties would have to pay for access. So Twitter wouldn't have to monetize strictly by ads anymore. They could pay from this access to their app. 
these companies could monetize however they want and they could implement their own moderation policy, which would kind of take the moderation thing out of Twitter's hands and kind of allow them to put that in everybody else's hands. It would also let various markets determine how much they care about moderation. You can imagine Europe and India Mm. would probably be stricter than the US. So not sure if this is going to bear fruit, but a really interesting proposal for how Twitter could move forward. Right. Yeah, that's a lot to swallow. I think the most interesting part of that equation is that they would be able to offset that moderation, which would be a very attractive thing to them, probably. Yeah. You know, that last part that you just brought up about this model potentially cleansing them of the moderation responsibilities brings us to our last and probably, I think, the broadest point here, which is just how this is going to affect free speech. You know, one issue here is defining what free speech is. Musk has said that a primary reason for buying Twitter is making it into sort of a town hall and reinstating this unfettered free speech that has in recent years been moderated to various extents. But we don't really have any clarity around what his version of free speech is. Yesterday, I think he tweeted, by free speech, I simply mean that which matches the law. But legal scholars will tell you that the law itself is highly interpretive when it comes to drawing the line between hate speech and free expression. There are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of Supreme Court cases that deal with this very issue. So... And Elon Musk doesn't exactly have the cleanest relationship with the law (laughs) as well, right? (laughs) Well, right. I mean, you know, anyone who follows Musk on Twitter, he spends his days simultaneously posting demeaning things about other people, but then also sometimes getting offended when people do the same for him. So it's confusing where he falls in this whole free speech debate. But also, Mark, something you brought up before we jumped on this recording is that he has been extremely critical of the freedom of the press and journalists in the past as well. Yeah, like all of the time. Um, I mean, there, there's been particular periods of Musk's sort of uh, famous life as a CEO that it's really um, kind of really been elevated, but he has always like had at least a sort of simmering amount of bile for the media. And like in, in 2018, when Tesla was kind of going through some tougher periods and there were a lot of articles describing Tesla going through what was a somewhat tougher period, he ranted on Twitter about how media companies, mm-hmm. quote, publish only enough to sugarcoat the lie. And he <laughs> said he was going to start a company that rated journalists media outlets and call it Pravda. And it turned out, as a journalist discovered, one of Musk's representatives had already filed paperwork to start a company called Pravda that happens to have been the official paper of the Communist Party. Mm. So that's the opposite of free speech, obviously, Pravda. And it just seems that Musk has, for the most part, talks a lot about free speech. And and as you were saying, at times can be quite vague about it, or at least not really acknowledging how complicated it is, and instead has a sort of view that is not uncommon among powerful people, which is that his problems with free speech are when free speech is not good for him. Right, right. That's kind of really the gist of it. Okay, playing off what you just said there, I think that there's another issue with free speech here, which is that Musk has many different business interests in different countries, particularly China. He has a Tesla production factory there. What's going to happen if China demands that Twitter cramp down on Uyghur activists or Hong Kong activists or dissidents from the CCP on Twitter? What's going to happen if they get 
pissed off about how much people are mouthing off on Twitter in opposition of the Communist Party, are they going to be demanding? I mean, we saw this happen with the NBA, right? Like some players were voicing their opinion about Hong Kong activism and China really cracked down on the NBA and put financial pressure on them. We could see the same thing playing out with Twitter here. Right. I think that's like one of the more concrete sort of aspects of this takeover of Twitter by Elon Musk. Like we can speculate a lot on what he means by free speech, what he's going to do with changing the algorithm and and sort of have all these different ideas. But there's no doubt that uh, assuming this sale does go through, that there is going to be major conflicts of interest between ownership of Tesla and owning Twitter and owning other things like SpaceX and the Boring Company. And, and China obviously comes to mind the most because, like you've said, Zach, they have flexed their muscles when other powerful organizations have tried to use free speech to say that what China is doing to the Uyghurs and in other sort of aspects of their communist states is not good. And will Elon Musk be able to handle all of that and everything that's going to be on Twitter with regards to China as it pertains to his business interest in Tesla? Like, we don't know. I I think there's another way on a much sort of smaller scale here in America, the Bourne Company, it contracts with local governments. It has done so with Chicago, for instance, and the politician Rahm Emanuel, when he was the mayor of, of Chicago, that is. I think that when Musk is in control of Twitter, he's already this very divisive figure. Mm-hmm. Now that he owns Twitter, it gives people more reasons to like have a problem with him. <laughs> you know, if, if some politician doesn't like what another politician is saying about them on Twitter, maybe they're not going to think as good of thoughts about the boring company. Right. And there goes that contract with, with some sort of city. It, it's just like... Twitter is just, it makes people so angry and so furious. And as does Elon Musk <laughs> in, in many instances. And it's just going to be magnified. And I think that's going to have a lot of potential consequences. But there are certainly conflicts of interest with his ownership of Twitter yeah. and with how he may have to run Tesla now and the Boring Company and et, et cetera. Yeah, it's been interesting to see just how much more passionate people are on each side of this argument than they were about, you know, say, Jeff Bezos buying Washington Post. I remember when that happened, you know, there was also an outcry. But in this case in particular, if you go on Twitter right now, you know, Musk's supporters are just losing their minds right now. Let's be frank, they're, they're saying all kinds of ridiculous things right now. But then on the other side, you have a lot of other people saying, this is the end of democracy. I'm going to leave Twitter. Like, this is the last straw for me. There's just a lot of very reactionary takes on both sides of this issue. So Musk just seems to stoke these very primal feelings in people one way or the other. When I was like going through the, the timeline on Monday, like in the uh, late morning, uh, early afternoon, whenever the, the sale was announced, like not joking, every tweet that I saw when I scrolled a couple times down was about Musk and, and about buying Twitter, which I mean, it sort of makes sense because it, it was on Twitter. But nevertheless, you're right. Like when Bezos bought Washington Post, it was kind of like a niche bit of outrage, you know, a very niche uh, <laughs> bit of commentary. And with this, everybody has a take. And, you know, some that I've seen are that like, you know, it's for people who are Musk detractors are like, they are frightened that Twitter is going to become you know, basically like an extremist's website. And then there was a lot of other people who were rejoicing. I think especially until, you know, Musk really does kind of exert control. It's just going to be a lot of that over and over. Right. And I think the last thing to acknowledge here is that obviously Twitter is a microcosm. Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's one in 10, basically, Americans, around 30, 35 million have Twitter. Um, and then I was looking at a stat from Hootsuite today, which is that 
25% of those 35 million users do 97% of the tweets. Yeah, that is. So you're talking about maybe nine, eight, nine, 10 million people are like the only ones tweeting on, an, on a given day. Like my mom doesn't even know who Elon Musk is. You know, I think a lot of Americans are maybe not as tuned into this as Twitter would suggest they are. No, it is funny though, because like up until all of this kind of Twitter craziness with Elon, like I think what he's done with Tesla is pretty amazing. It's it's kind of hard to argue with what he's done for EVs and kind of the future of the automobile and really kind of pushing the industry in that direction. Like he's really done some amazing stuff on that front. But when I talk to my dad about Elon Musk, he hates the guy. And like, it's all because he just sees all of this crazy meme <clears> stuff and the meme stocks. And it's going to be really interesting to see what his legacy ends up being when you combine all of these things. Because it's really kind of hard yeah. to figure this guy out. Yeah. You know, I think yesterday he posted a picture of Bill Gates and said, if you want to lose a boner fast, look at this <laughs> exactly. picture. And it's like... You know, you could argue that these are just kind of harmless jokes, but I think, Mark, as you said, there are also very valid criticisms of Elon Musk and his business practices, allegations of sexism and racism in his factories and all kinds of other things going on. He is a very divisive character, for sure. And in some ways, like Twitter itself, you can say how important it is or how potentially important it could become. You know, certainly when we look back at like the Arab Spring from 2011, it, it played a role in that. But in a lot of other ways, it does just seem like a big shiny object. Again, like we were talking about eight or nine million people who like truly use it in America. And that's it. And Musk has kind of gone from these electric vehicles, space travel to his shiny object, which is Twitter. And, and to think if that's what distracts him from his bigger businesses that could, like you were saying, Rob, affect his legacy. Mm. And then the other thing is this, as I was saying, everybody was talking about Musk buying Twitter these last couple of days. And they're not talking so much about the allegations of racism against his factories. California is suing him because of that. That's a really big deal. Mm -hmm. And instead, it's like this uh, shiny object that we all pay attention to that Musk just bought is the thing that we're talking about. It's just very Elon Musk-esque, I, I suppose. It's very Zuck-esque yeah. yeah. as well, Mark, like changing your name to Meta amid all of these Instagram controversies. Yeah, it's a really good point. All these guys have the same playbook. Well, on that note, that's going to do it for us today. There's a lot more to say on this. We're going to keep covering this closely and keep you in the loop. Thanks for tuning into the Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. Our editor is Robert Hartwig and our executive producer is Darren Clark. If you liked what you heard today, we've got a lot more tech and business coverage over at thehustle.co. We'll catch you all tomorrow.